Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be camping out there uh, primarily this morning, and we're going to kind of dovetail off of where we were last week, and I'll give you some heads up with that as well uh, here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, God, a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, the day where every single week we remember that you resurrected your son. God, we celebrate and we worship on Sunday because this is the day that we know that our justification was made complete through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his sacrifice was for us and in our place and his resurrection is an indication to us that we also will be uh, raised. And so God, we praise you for that this morning. Lord, as we dig into your word, we pray that God, we will be changed from the inside out We submit ourselves this morning to the authority of your word. Uh, We do not want to make the Bible apply to our lives, but rather apply our lives to the Bible. Um, We rest in that today, knowing that, God, we come to receive from you. We come to feed on you through your word and through the meal that you've provided for us in communion. And, God, we know that your Holy Spirit is at work today in our lives preparing us for what you want to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and a few verses out of uh, chapter 6. We're going to deal primarily with verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Uh, But let's kind of go, and what we may do is just read a little bit and talk a little bit and read a little bit and talk a little bit, and then we're going to tie it all into what's going on here. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to just uh, go over a little bit of what we, where we were last week. There are a lot of you that were out last week. Last week, um, we really set a premise for uh, looking at church, uh, not as something that we attend, but rather as something that we are. Uh, church is not an event that you attend, it is who you are as disciples and as believers. And we walked all the way from Genesis chapter 1 through into the New Testament. We looked at Acts 2, 42-47, we looked at Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, and we looked at how God's plan has always been about choosing and creating a family, and then through that family, blessing all the nations of the earth. And we see that right at the beginning in creation when God chooses and creates a family in Adam and Eve and plants them in the garden and he gives them a mandate. What was the mandate? Be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. And they did, right? Uh, Then we know that that was creation and after creation was what? The fall. And sin enters the world and there's brokenness that enters into human DNA. And sin corrupts what God had created as good. And that goes so far that God's willing to actually destroy everyone and everything except what? In a flood, he destroys everyone and everything except what? One family. And again, what does God do? He shows us that he chooses and creates A family, and from that family blesses, and in this case, actually procreates the rest of humanity. We go through the Old Testament then, and we see that God then, out of those people who came from Noah and his family, God again does what? Chooses one, and out of them creates a family. It was Abraham. Then at that time, Abram, and God calls Abram out of the land of his fathers to a land that God will show him. And out of Abram, he creates the nation of Israel. And what does he say to them? He says to Abram, he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And out of you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world. And so God, out of this family, chooses Abram, out of Abram, he chooses the line of Judah. Out of Judah, he chooses David. Out of David, we get Christ. And Christ comes along, and we looked at Matthew chapter 16 last week, and we saw that Jesus makes this bold statement. And he says, I am going to build my church. And it's the first time that we have that word in the New Testament is when Jesus says it in Matthew 16. But when he says, I'm going to build my church, the word that he uses there is a word, ecclesia, and it does not mean a building. 
The word ecclesia. So Jesus says, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Then he makes a statement, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, just so you know, because sometimes we get a little confused there, you don't use gates to beat someone up. You with me? I mean, unless maybe Samson. I know Samson like ripped up some, some gates and like put them up on a hill, but even Samson didn't beat anyone with gates. He used a jawbone, okay? <laughs> and much, much more effective tool in the hand, a jawbone versus gates, right? You don't beat people up with gates, but a lot of times we, we kind of get that impression, you know, devil's just been beating me down, brother, Pastor Mike, devil's been on my case and beating me. That's not how it's supposed to work. Okay, the gates of hell are not coming to attack you. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and my church is going to attack and push back the gates of hell. And those gates will not prevail against my church. But again, that church, we, we've got this idea of like a building and steeple, right? Like we even did it as kids, you know, uh, here's the church and here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. Well, the church is the people. Ecclesia means the assembly of called out ones. That's what the word ecclesia means. And so Jesus is saying, I am going to build my people and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against their advancement. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. Okay, so the church is people. Well, how do you become a part of Jesus' people that he's building? Well, you become a part of the people that Jesus is building, and it starts again with God choosing. God chooses a people for himself, and through Christ, he redeems them and purchases them, and by faith, that redemption is applied to them, and they become, John 1, verse 12, adopted into God's family. But as many as received him, Christ, God gave them the power, the authority, the ability to become the sons and the daughters of God. We become, Paul would say in Romans, adopted into God's family. And being adopted into God's family, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our heart and crying out within us, Abba, Father. We talked about how that uh, I love every kid in this church tremendously, but they are not my kids. If they came up and called me daddy, we'd have to have a little lesson about who daddy is. I'm not your daddy. Okay, your daddy's over there. That's your daddy, right? When we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. It's a mysterious, miraculous thing. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit regenerates. He breathes life into us. Ephesians 1 and 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, through the Holy Spirit, has raised us to new life. And the Holy Spirit cries out in us, Abba, Father. We can look to God. We can call Him Father. And the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, that's that's okay because he is, in fact, your father, right? He, and if you're calling God father and the Holy Spirit's not inside of you, there would be a disgen, disingenuous thing that's going on in your heart. You'd be saying, Father God, I think, maybe, uh, not really, I don't think so, but that's what they told me to call him. The Holy Spirit has to live inside you and there's something in your heart, in your spirit that the Holy Spirit will cry out. When you call God Father, there's something in you going, yes, you are my Father. So that means that the people that Jesus is building, his, what he calls his church, not a building, not an event, not a Sunday morning service, a people, they are actually what? A family. Because if by faith you are adopted into God's family. We are brothers and sisters. So that wasn't just some weird thing that we used to say back in the day in church. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. There is actually theological depth and meaning to calling each other brother and sister because we are affirming that we're a part of the same family and that God is our father. And so by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a part of this family, this people that God is building. That's why... On our website, you'll hear us say that Redemption Hill, we are a gospel-formed family, right? The gospel builds a community that lives 
on mission. So here's the last part of that. So we're, we're formed by the gospel through what Jesus has done for us. We become adopted into God's family, this community of people, this familial relationship of people that's based on believing into Christ for salvation. This community is built within us. And then as a community, what does God do? He chooses and creates a family to what? Bless all the people's of the earth, right? He doesn't choose and create a family to then go live in some huddle somewhere where no one else can see them or get to them, but rather he chooses and creates them together so that they might be a blessing to all people and all nations. And so the gospel forms a community, a family that lives on mission. What is the mission? That mission is being a blessing to all the peoples of the world. Now, can I ask you a question, what is the greatest blessing that someone can receive in this life? Well, this rhetorical little bit, think about it, formulate your answer, and then I'll talk to you. This last week in our catechism on Wednesday, our first question was, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer to that question is, our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God, both body and soul, in life and death, and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So our only hope in this life is what? If we belong to God. And so what is the greatest blessing that someone could receive in this life? Is to find out that they also belong to God. And that they have a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. That'd be the... Any disagreement there? Anyone think there's something better? million bucks doesn't compare. Why? Because this life will end, and the million bucks is gone. A million bucks would be great. A lot you can do with a million bucks. Do a lot of good, have a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind having a million bucks, just saying. But that's not the greatest blessing that I could receive in this life. The greatest treasure, the greatest blessing that I could ever receive, and that I have received, and I believe that I've received, is to find out that I belong to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest blessing that anyone else could receive. So what is the mission? What is being a blessing to other people? It is showing them Christ as Savior and Lord. It's proclaiming the gospel. It's demonstrating the gospel. It's telling people what Jesus has done. Amen. And that's kind of where we ended last week, right? So that was a quick setup, all right, just to catch you all up. And we said, okay, so we're just... Those people that Jesus is forming were also called what? Disciples. And we look in Matthew 28 and we see Jesus actually saying, okay, let's not let it be just kind of an assumed thing. Let's actually commission you. And so Jesus in Matthew 28 says, all power and authority has been given to me. I now give it to you. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. To every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things I have commanded you. And then he gives a promise, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, that was given to all disciples, right? It, it wasn't Mike Hooper Jr.'s name in the Bible, and it's like Mike Hooper Jr.'s job to preach the gospel and baptize everybody. No, that was given to every disciple. Every one of these people that's a part of this family that Jesus is redeeming and building together as this assembly of called out ones. You are adopted sons and daughters of God and disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples, you have been commissioned to go and make other disciples. And we saw the correlation between what Jesus says to this family that he chose and planted in Jerusalem. And he said, let it go then from Jerusalem into Judea and from Judea into Samaria and from Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world. We see this correlation between what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28 and what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis, right? What does he say to Adam and Eve in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue and dominate and fill the earth. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? Be fruitful and multiply and dominate and subdue the earth. Go, therefore, and make other use, right? Essentially, that's what God said to Adam and Eve. Make more use. And Jesus comes to the disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, I'm going, now you go and make more use. That's your job. And disciples make disciples. That's what disciples do. And we're going to talk a little bit about what disciples are and what our job is 
uh, in making more disciples. And so before we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's talk about that just a little bit. And I brought my trusty little board here to help us out. So the question becomes, okay, fine, we're, we're disciples, so what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is a person who increasingly submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So a good working definition of a disciple is a person who increasingly submits to the lordship of of Jesus Christ, worshiping, being changed, obeying, teaching others to do the same thing. Church, people, assembly of called out ones, disciples, this is our job. We are to be disciples who make disciples. We are to be people who increasingly submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives and teach other people to do the same. That is the role and the job of the church of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not to build buildings. It's not to, um, I'm not saying building buildings is bad. I'm just saying that's not our job as Jesus has handed it down. Our job and everything that we do. So whether we build a building or we don't build a building, it needs to be connected to what we're doing here. If building a building helps us do this, let's build a building. If not building a building helps us do this, then let's not build a building. So don't get hung up on what I'm saying here. Okay, but let me just wrap on this for a second, okay? It's not building buildings. It's not building programs. It's not, um, it's not feeding everyone. It's not uh, doing all kinds of good things in the earth. Those things are good and should be done, but it's not the role of the church. The role of the church, the people of God, this assembly of called out ones is to be disciples who make disciples. That is our role as the church. We are to be people, a group, a gathering, an assembly of people who through faith in Jesus Christ are increasingly submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we're teaching each other and others to do the same. We are disciples who make disciples. That is our calling Paul would call it a high and noble calling in the New Testament. This is our job. Why do we gather together on Sunday morning and worship and proclaim the gospel and, and, and gather together? It's, it's connected to this because we are building and making disciples. We are disciples who are making disciples. But this, what you see here today, is just a fraction of what it means. It's a piece of making disciples being and making disciples, it's not the whole pie, okay? Because a disciple, being a disciple is an identity, just like being the church is an identity. So you don't go, you don't go and be a disciple and then clock out. A disciple is something that you are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and 366 days on leap year. And making disciples is not something that you go and do. It's rather something that you are. You're a disciple maker. Just like I will never stop being a parent for the rest of my life. It doesn't ever stop. My kids move out. I'm still their parent. They die. I'm still their parent. I'm not ever going to stop being a parent because I'm a parent. That's who I am. It's part of my identity. I will always and forever now be a father, right? And as disciples, we are called to make disciples. It's part of who we are. We are disciplers. That's an identity that doesn't change and it never goes away. So how are you doing with that on Sunday mornings? You making lots of disciples on Sunday mornings? Well, why not? Well, because this isn't a great opportunity for you to do that on Sunday mornings, really, is it? I mean, there's, there's parts of that. I'll, I'll share two of them that have happened this morning so far. Jeanette gets up and she begins to testify. And what does she say? She says, I believe someone in here this morning needs to know. God, God's stirring something in my heart, needs to know that, that you will see the goodness of 
of the Lord in the land of the living. What she didn't tell you is that just a short time ago, Jeanette was diagnosed with breast cancer and went through a very long and tedious battle with that, pursuing God and pursuing what she should do and wrestling with how does she treat this and how does she, what decisions does she have to make and coming to the elders and asking for prayer. And we'd have days where after service, women were gathered around her and laying their hands on her and praying with her and, and meeting up with her throughout the week and seeing how she's doing. And God healed her. Praise God. She's seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that's amazing. But let me tell you what else you're going to see. You're not only going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living never ends for those who are chosen and called according to the purpose of God. Right? So this life isn't all we've got. And the land of the living continues for those who are called according to the purpose of God. And so that carries on even into death. Which means we have what? A hope. Paul says in this same book, 2 Corinthians, we'll eventually get there, I promise. But in chapter 15, in chapter 15, he says, if, if we had hope for this life only, we would be of all people the most to be pitied. If the only hope that Christians had was in, in this life, we would be of all people to be pitied. Why? Because we've staked our claim in something that's beyond. And if it's not there, then... What did we live for? But Paul says we, ha we have a hope that is anchored in Christ that is a guarantee. How do we know? Because he came back from the dead, and we will as well. So let's carry on. Disciples, this is who we're called. It's an identity. It's not anything that turns off, turns on, turns off, turns on. It is always a part of who we are. You, all of you are sons and daughters. You were born to somebody. You never stop being sons and daughters. Never. You never stop being a part of someone's family. And God said you'll never stop being a part of his. Amen. And as his family, now he says what? He says, I'm going to grow you into maturity. Now, I used, to, I used to struggle when people would talk about baby Christians. Anyone ever, if you've been in the church long enough, you've probably heard people talk about baby Christians. It always kind of bothered me a little bit because usually it was said in, a, in, in the connotation wasn't maturity, it was actually like second class. Can I tell you something? There is no such thing as a second class Christian. There's no such thing as a second class believer. You are adopted into the family of God. But let me tell you what there is. There is such thing as an immature believer, and there's such thing as a maturing believer. And there's such thing as a believer who has matured on into glory. <laughs> right? And so there is a maturation in our walk with God in being a disciple. And again, that points to our definition here. A person who what? Increasingly submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ which means what you don't have to already be a perfect person to be a disciple in fact being a disciple basically connotates that you are not you are in progress right now notice the beautiful part of that because as a disciple you're called to make disciples which means before you have achieved anything which let me just tell you something the achievement we're looking for here you don't get in this life it's when you pass into the next okay so so you can quit trying to achieve that all right please don't try to achieve that um, in any way shape or form uh, we'll let God take care of that part of it okay all right some of you didn't get that at all but that's all right you'll get it later all right so this connotates that we are actually in progress, but what does it also mean? It means that while you are in progress, make other people who will also be in progress. You're not perfect before you start doing this. There's no place where you have to get to to make other disciples. The moment you become a disciple, part of your identity is making other disciples. Teaching other people to increasingly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you a question, a very personal question, very intimate question. How do you know whether or not you are submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does that even mean? Now, to say lordship of Jesus Christ, I mean, we, we can reach back into history a little bit and we understand that someone who is a lord is also called what? 
a king or a ruler or a master, right? So if we kind of use that language, we could say that a disciple is a person who increasingly submits to the authority or rule or kingship or rulership or lordship of Jesus Christ. So there's an understanding that Jesus is king. Uh, This is why Christians are dangerous in any society. Because as Christians, our allegiance is not supposed to stop at the head of our government, but actually carry on to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which means when it comes down to the wire, we are called to obey God rather than men. As long as the rules of man coincide with the rules of God, we can obey the rules of men. If they don't coincide with the rules of God, then we as Christians who are increasingly submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives understand that we have a higher allegiance. And so we submit to the lordship of Jesus over the rule of men. Can I get a witness? Amen. All right. I'll preach for myself and and amen myself if I have to, okay? So increasingly, there's a maturation process that's there. It's an ongoing progress, a process that's happening, submitting to the lordship. So we have a king, a ruler, someone who's an authority over us, and we need to be in submission to him. Now, how do we know what he wants? Well, brother, I'm, you know, I, every day I wake up and I'm just like, God, Whatever you want me to do, I know that you're just going to like transfer it and I'm just going to know what it is. Just going to know. Just, and, and, what, and I'm just going to sit here until you tell me to move. You're going to sit for a long time. You're going to sit for a long time until the Holy Spirit just gets tired of you sitting on your butt and comes up and says, fine, just move already, right? Go. He, he, he has given you instruction. Where is it? Where can you find it? The Word of God, the Bible. And so the way that we know how we're increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is in by submitting to the authority of the Word that He has given, the Bible, Scripture. That's why we say sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the authority given over us on this earth. The highest authority that we have is the word of God and we submit ourselves to the word of God. And God may tell you something. How do you know it's God? How do you know that it is God that's speaking to you when you're sitting there waiting for God to speak to you? By taking what he said, what you believe he said to you and putting it against the word of God. If it lines up to the word of God, then maybe it is God. Or maybe you just got lucky. Lucky, A broken clock is right two times a day anyways, right? Just saying. So don't trust yourself. Trust the word of God. You submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ by submitting to his word. Because his word is right every hour of the day. Amen? And so we do that. Now, but we also saw even last week as we did this that again, right disciple is about being connected to other disciples, not only in making them, but in the ones who helped make us. That means there was someone teaching us to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ increasingly through all of our life. And that means that while they were doing it to us, there were others. And so being a disciple is not being a lone ranger. It's being someone who's connected to other disciples, to this family, this assembly, this people of God that Jesus is building and creating and saying they're going to advance and the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we're connected to each other, we're all teaching each other how to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your lives. Now, how are you going to know if your brother or sister in Christ is increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ if the only time you ever see them is on Sunday morning? How are you going to know? Well, I'm going to ask them. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's, I mean, it's a start. So, brother, are you... Increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of your life. God, I hate they ask me that every week. Yes, yes, yep, yep, doing great, doing great there. All right, good. And so the guy who asked checks it off his box, and the guy who answered checks it off his. Thank God we got through that. It's not how it works. Sunday morning worship is not our time to be and make disciples and check it off the box and go about the rest of our week. The rest of our week should rotate and, 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 and 
What's the word? It should orbit around the rest our the rest of our lives should orbit around the fact that we are adopted sons and daughters of God, disciples of Jesus Christ. And in every area of our life we should be making disciples. My wife and I are discipling each other. We together are discipling our kids. Living on our block, it's our goal, it's our prayer, it's our desire to help make disciples in our neighborhood through our neighbors. As, 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 as we live and we go and we work, when I go and I work, I get to disciple other people. This week in a sales call, I'm sitting with somebody and he starts talking about honesty and integrity. And we got talking about the Lord. And I just said, well, are you a man of God? Yeah, I, I saw he had some Alpha and Omega ring and some ring in Hebrew right there. I said, well, I see this. Are you, are you a man of God? Well, yes, I am. I said, well, then if you're a man of God, then you should tell the truth. Well, well yeah, I should. You're, you're right. I, I should do that. So I don't need anything from you. Just tell me the truth and I'll believe you. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you the truth. I mean, even in that moment, even though it's just small and, and, and whatever, we're, what am, we're discipling, right? Last night, I'm at the Home and Garden Show um, in a booth uh, for my work. And Gene, who's a member of our church here, we're there together. And, and so we're there for only so long before we start talking about the Word of God. What are we doing? We're iron sharpens iron, and we're discussing the Word of God. We're discipling. We're helping each other learn how to increasingly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all areas of our life. It carries on. Can, can I tell you this amazing missions uh, data right now? Um, right now, we have, I believe, two million Americans who right now are working as expats in what uh, Christians for a long time have called the 1040 window. It has to do with longitude and latitude, and if you add up the 1040 window, you look at it, you drew it across on a map, every nation in that 1040 window represents the most unreached people groups of the world that have not yet received and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, or if they have, it's in very minute, minuscule ways, okay? We have, from America, 2 million Americans being paid by corporations to work in those areas throughout the world, okay? Now, even based on a very conservative understanding of how many people identify as Christians in the United States, we could say that at least 10% of those 2 million people would identify as Bible-believing Christians, at least on paper, okay? If they really understood that as Christians they're called to always be disciples who make disciples, that means that if, they just, if we could tell them that today and they could wake up tomorrow, there would be 200,000 fully funded missionaries in the most unreached people groups on the planet. Now, mission agencies have been working for years trying to entice Christians to leave their jobs and their families and their homes and move to these areas and raise support so that they can go and proclaim the gospel in those unreached people groups and nations. But there are already, I mean, just, just conservatively, we can know there are already 200,000 fully funded Christians living in those areas. And, and over the last several years, we have tried even just to get 40,000. We said if we could just get 40,000 missionaries into those areas, we could see a difference made for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if Christians actually understood their identity as disciples and adopted sons and daughters of God, and they could wake up tomorrow morning, we'd have 200,000 fully funded Christian missionaries living in the most unreached people groups and nations of the world. Now that's awesome, and I'm glad I got you to think about that, but now let's think about it in terms of the United States. If every Christian in 
churches this morning that have their butts in a pew or in a chair on any church, Christian, Bible-believing Christian church in America understood this, we would wake up tomorrow with an understanding that we have all been called as missionaries, not to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, every single one of us, but just to our neighbor across the road, to our coworker across the cubicle, to our sister who lives across town to the guy that we see every morning on the way to work, to our schoolmate that has the desk next to us, to my brother and sister who live in the house with me. And you don't need a paycheck because mission and discipling and discipleship and being a disciple was never supposed to be about a job, something to do. It's supposed to be who we are. Now, back to not knowing whether or not someone's increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ on Sunday morning. It's not going to happen, okay? And that's not how Jesus discipled the disciples. How did Jesus disciple the disciples? Well, he said, all right, guys, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we're going to meet right here. We're going to have some fish and some bread. I'll break it. Don't worry if they've only got, you know, like two loaves and, and five pieces of, or two fish and five loaves. I'll, you know, I'll break it. There'll be enough. Don't worry. But just come, you know, Sundays at uh, 10 a.m. and, and uh, I will disciple you. Anyone read that in the New Testament? No, it didn't happen. That's why. How did Jesus disciple the disciples? They, they lived life on life together. They walked together, they ate together, they lived together, they, 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 they went together uh, everywhere that Jesus was going, the disciples went. There's, there's an old adage about disciples and rabbis, and it says uh, there was a blessing that other rabbis used to pray over the disciples of other rabbis. And it was this, it says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea being, may you be so close to your rabbi that you get covered in the dust that's being kicked up from his feet so that you are close enough to hear everything that he said, right? Otherwise, it's like the old telegraph game we used to play when we were kids, right? Where you start over here, you give someone a word to say, and you pass it all the way down here, all the way around, and all the way back here. And what we said up there is definitely not what was said over here, right? You remember that game? So the closer you were to your rabbi, the more likely you were to hear everything that he said, and you didn't have to turn and say, what did he say? Right? So how did Jesus disciple the disciples? It was life on life. It was life lived together. It was eating and sharing meals together over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It was walking together and journeying together and going places together. So how do we take that and contextualize it for us and say, well, then how how do we do that? Well, Here to tell you today, everyone needs to quit your job. We're all going to move to... No, that's not what we're going to do. That's ridiculous. What it means, though, is that in the regular rhythms of our already in-progress lives, we choose to involve each other in those rhythms of our lives. Any any stay-at-home moms in the house? Any stay-at-home moms? Stay-at-home moms, awesome. Love stay-at-home moms. You guys are, you have probably the toughest job of anyone and the lowest pay, all right? How many of you stay-at-home moms grocery shop ever, okay? Oh, all of you grocery shop, oh. So that means there is a normal, regular rhythm of your lives. You all grocery shop. So we could say that one way that you could live life on life with other women in you're, this body of believers is you could probably go grocery shopping together. If you're stay-at-home moms, you could probably figure it out how you could go grocery shopping together. I'm, just, I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying it could happen. It could happen. Does anyone ever get coffee throughout the week from somewhere other than your home? Anybody? I heard an amen. I don't see any hands. Anybody? One, two, three, four, boom, 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 boom. That's a regular rhythm of your life. How could you involve other people from this body of believers into that rhythm of your life? Well, maybe go get coffee together. Anybody walk, run, exercise, work out? That's a rhythm of your life. 
You can involve other people in that rhythm of your life. Okay, now, those have all been some kind of off-the-wall ones, but, but we're going to get real personal here. Does anyone eat? Anyone eats, right? Okay. How many people try? No, it doesn't always happen, but how many people try to get three square a day? Three square a day. Some people. Two, two square a day at least, okay? If you're getting three square a day, that's 21 times a week. 21 times a week that you have a rhythm of something that you do that you could involve other people in. And you could, they're going to eat, you're going to eat, you could both eat. I'm not even saying you have to prepare and cook everything for them. Just be like, hey, I'm eating. Are you eating? Yeah, why don't we eat together? Okay, cool. Let's do that. Let's eat together. You see, the church sharing meals together wasn't supposed to be about a potluck. It was supposed to be about supposed to be about living life on life together and being involved in the regular rhythms of everyday, ordinary life where you get to share and talk and, and, and be involved. And that's when you are going to know whether or not you and your brothers and sisters are increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of your life. And as brothers and sisters, you know what we can begin to do? As trust is built, I'm not saying you got like the three stay-at-home moms. You're like, yeah, I grocery shop, get together after school. We're grocery shopping tomorrow, Monday. And then you go grocery shopping. You're like, okay, give me the dirt on everything in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But as you begin to live life on life with each other, remember that Jesus was gentle with the disciples. Three years he walked every day with them. And he didn't deal with all the junk in their life on day one. But as things came up in through life, Jesus would address it, wouldn't he? And he did it with grace. He was bold about it, but he did it with grace. And that's what we need to do with each other. And so as relationship is built, as trust is built, then you begin to open up in in your life. Um, How many people think the Bible, uh, I don't know if I want to go here. Anyone have a regular rhythm of reading the Bible in your life? Maybe don't raise your hand. Let's do it this way. How many people as disciples believe that you should have a regular rhythm of reading, of reading the Bible in your life, right? Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. We know that we should have that as a regular rhythm of our lives. And what a better rhythm to involve other people in. And this is what I ask people to do. We, I don't ask people to come ready to meet and read the Bible and go, hey, here's all the sins I committed last week. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. But as you read the Word of God, the Word of God is perfect and it is holy. It is a reflection of God's character. It's a reflection to you of you're not living up to God's character. And as you read the Bible together and something comes up in what you're reading that week that, that the Holy Spirit says, yep, that's you, and that's something I'm trying to work on in your life right now, then when you get together, be honest about that and say, hey, you know, um, in 2 Corinthians uh, this week when we were reading in chapter 7, uh, because that actually, that actually happened this week, um, you remember when it said that there was a, there was a, um, a grief that produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Remember when we read that? Man, I haven't had that kind of grief. Like, I haven't had grief that leads me to repentance in life. Like, I've just been upset that, I, that God's been on my case about something that I've been doing. And when I read that this week, I realized that, like, I wasn't really repenting. I was just mad that I got caught. Would you, would you pray with me about that? You know what they might do? They might go, oh, gosh. I read that, but I didn't even see that. But now that you say that, I think I've been doing the same thing. I mean, 
When we confess our sins, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that means that, that when we're sorry about our sin, we should actually become happy. The reformers had a phrase for that, Felix culpa, a happy fall. Because when I trip and I fall in my brokenness and my sin and I'm reminded of the cross of Jesus Christ and that the blood of Jesus covers me both past, present, and future, that should be something that reminds me of God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy for me that does not lead me to carry on doing it but rather causes me to turn around and look at the cross again and repent. Isaiah would say it's his kindness that leads me to repentance. It's his kindness that leads me to repentance. And so as disciples who are increasingly submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's not something we're doing on our own like lone rangers. It's something that's meant to be being done in the community, the people, the family of God that Jesus is building. And as we do that and we make other disciples, so that means there are some people who weren't a part of the family of God, but who through faith in Jesus Christ are becoming a part of the family of God. We're teaching them to increasingly submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives, and we begin to involve that in them in that process. Which means what? As we do this, we get to see, and this is my prayer, that in my life I would see the New Testament church where God is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Why? Because the church was about being who they were called to be rather than trying to do a bunch of stuff. And what are we called to be? We're called to be disciples who make disciples. In that vein, we have some people that are going to start opening up their homes. We talked about it before we started preaching. And by we, I mean me. Um, <laughs> we're all in this together. It's we, it's we. They're opening up their homes, and what they want to do is just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to open up my home, and, and I want to welcome, I want to be hospitable to my brothers and sisters in Christ and say, why don't you come and invade my space? I'm welcoming you to come and invade my space and be involved in a rhythm of my life ongoingly. And let's, and let's, let's walk this journey together. Let's live out this life of disciples and disciple-making together. And, and let's not make disciples like Lone Rangers, but rather let's do it together, right? Because it can be kind of daunting when you hear someone say, you're a disciple, you're supposed to make disciples. Now get out there and make disciples. Go get them. And, and there's two reactions to that. Like, yes, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. And, oh, I'm going to give it everything I have. In about two and a half weeks, you burn out. And then there's the other part that's like, uh, no, nope, uh-uh. No way. I'm just happy, just me and Jesus right here. Now, it was never meant to be about you and Jesus, the end. It was meant to be about you and Jesus and the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not called to make disciples by ourselves, but to do it in community. And so how awesome is it if you are already involved in the regular rhythms of your brothers and sisters in Christ and their lives are involved in your regular rhythms and then God puts someone in your path who you know he's put in your path to show him Jesus. But now you don't have to do that by yourself because you got brothers and sisters who are way more outgoing than you are, that you're involved in the regular rhythms of their lives and they're involved in the regular rhythms of your life and you can take this person that you knew God has put in your path to show them Jesus and go, hey, you want to go have a meal with me and my friends? Yeah, let's go. And so they go and they go and they have a meal with you and your friends and, and together you begin to talk to them about what it means to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. Now, I did a lot of talking. Let's get to the Bible and let's wrap this up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul really gives us a beautiful commentary on Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28. Uh, I want to go ahead and start at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this tent that Paul is talking about here is your mortal body, your physical mortal being. Okay? 
Your body is not just a body, but it is the casing for your soul, for your spirit. And Paul is saying here that this tent, if it is destroyed for those who are in Christ, we know that we have a new and immortal dwelling place, a tent for our soul and our spirit. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened by everything that sin has brought to us, right? Not that we would be unclothed, but rather that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal, this body, may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so Paul says in, in light of that, so we are always of good courage. Why? Because we know that this and everything that we see around us is not the be all and end all. There's something more. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Make it our aim to please Him. Make it our aim to please Him. To increasingly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you see that? For... Verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? We know that's going to happen. Paul says, therefore, verse 11, knowing the fear of Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, that we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. There were a bunch of false teachers that uh, had it made, because that's usually how it goes for false teachers. Remember we read from Romans chapter 1 a few weeks ago, and we said if everyone's getting everything that they've ever wanted, take a few steps away from them, because them getting everything that they've ever wanted is usually the wrath of God being poured out on them. And false teachers, let me tell you, the wrath of God is coming for false teachers. But man, they can be filthy rich sometimes. And these false teachers who had everything going on for them were pointing at Paul and saying, look at Paul. He's preaching this, you know, gospel message to you, but look at his life. Beaten and shipwrecked and left for dead and stoned and running away from the law. Look at us. We've got it going on. We're rolling in style. We've got all the money. We don't have any cares and, and everything is fine and good and dandy. Paul, that guy's a loser. And so Paul is making a defense here that, that that lifestyle is not an indication of whether or not you're from God and you've had the commendation of God, okay? So that's what's going on there. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, verse 13, it is for God. So if it seems like we're crazy, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So however you are seeing us right now, if you think that we are absolutely out of our minds, you need to know that we'll be fools for Jesus. But if you hear what we're saying, and even though we look like fools, you see that God is taking the wisdom of the world and making it foolish by the cross of Jesus Christ, which Paul talks about earlier to the Corinthians, and you see that as the wisdom of God, then know that it is for you that it seems like we're in our right mind. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, and we're doing this because God said we had to. He's saying, no, the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. We cannot help but do this because of what God has already done for us. He says, because we have concluded this, that one, Christ, has died for all. Therefore, legally, all have been accounted as dead. Okay? That's what Paul's saying there. 
Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live, in other words, those who believe in him and live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him, Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. So they might what? Live for whom? For Jesus. What does that sound like? Increasingly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That their whole lives were about living for the one who lived and died for them. Now, now that's something awesome there I want you to grab here real quick. That means that it was both Jesus' life for you and in your place and his death for you and in, his, in your place. That means Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live and then died the death. So he lived the life you were supposed to live and haven't and can't and won't and never will. But then he died the death that you deserve because you couldn't live the life that you were supposed to live. So it's both his life for you and in your place and his death for you and in your place. And he did not remain dead but was raised to life. Verse 16, and this is where we're going to really focus in. From now on, therefore, so because of that, Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There was a time when Paul was not a believer. And when Paul was not a believer, he looked at Jesus Christ as merely a man. He was just a man. Not only a man, he was an imposter, not the Messiah. And then one day, on a road that was leading to this place called Damascus, Jesus kicked that dude off his donkey. Struck him to the ground and said, at this time he was known as Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Who are you? I, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And from that moment, Paul Saul, who became Paul, believed in Jesus Christ and no longer regarded Jesus as just some other guy, but rather as the Son of God and the Messiah. Do you follow? So he regarded Christ thus no longer. And he says to us that we're supposed to regard each other according to the flesh no longer as well. Why? Because he's about to show us, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That means for anyone who is in Christ, who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given a new identity. What is that identity? Disciple and son or daughter of God. You're a new creation. And as a new creation, we're not supposed to regard you as what you formerly were, but rather regard you as what you now are in Christ. For us, a family member, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and a disciple who's called to make disciples. How do we know? He goes on. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ... What's that word there? Reconciled. What tense is that word? Past. Isn't that amazing? Who through Christ, not is reconciling, not will reconcile, but rather reconciled us to himself. Notice again, it's a collective thing that's happening. And gave again us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, sometimes we stop there and we go, oh, oh, here we go. He's just given us something to do. It's us. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. We got to get out there and start reconciling everything. But Paul, Paul goes on and he shows us and unpacks for us what this ministry of reconciliation really is. What does it say? That is, notice, <laughs> he's going to define this for us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So what is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given unto us? 
The ministry of reconciliation that God's given unto us is simply a message of reconciliation. So it's not our job to go and reconcile. It's our job to announce that God has in Christ reconciled. Right? World War II got finished. And World War II was a massive war. And it was not just in Europe, but it was all over the South Pacific. And in the South Pacific, you have many islands. And on these many islands, you had many people who were fighting and waiting for news that the war had ended. And there were people who carried on living as if the war was on, even though the war had ended. Why? Because no one took the time to show up and tell them, hey, guess what? The war is over, right? They needed someone to come and tell them the war is over so that they could lay down their weapons and and surrender to peace. People. The wrath of God has been poured out, but it's been poured out on Christ and the war is over. God has reconciled us to himself through his body on the tree. The war is over. And that's what we're called to announce to people. Do you know how many people I've talked to? And, 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 and you know what? Our discipleship used to be as big as like handing someone a, a, an invite card. Hey, come to church with me. Why don't you come to church with me? Come to church with me. And you know what they would say time and time again? They'd be like, man, if I walk through the doors of that church, you don't want to know what would happen if I walked through the doors of that church. It would come falling down on top of me. Why? Because they believe the war is still on. They believe that God is still at war with them, that they are at enmity with God, and in a sense they are because of their sin. But how can that peace be established? God said, I am going to do it. Now let's go all the way back to Abraham. i got to do this, I'm sorry. Go all the way back to Abraham, right? First family, God chooses them. Through them, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. God says, I'm going to cut a covenant with you, Abraham. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to rip this animal apart. You're going to rip this animal apart in two halves. And, and then, may it be unto the person who walks through this cut-up animal if this covenant is broken. And then... Just so God could make sure, just like he put Adam in a deep sleep when he took the rib to make Eve, God put Abraham in a deep sleep so that he couldn't get up and walk through that cut up animal and have it be unto him if Abraham broke the covenant. You know what happened instead? Abraham goes to sleep. He's at rest. God walks through the broken cut up animal and God officially said, if this covenant is not kept by you, Abraham, may it be unto me. May it be unto me, I will be the responsible party to make peace and to make amends and to make what is broken whole again. And you know what God did? The covenant was broken. It was broken by us. And you know what God did? He tore himself apart through his son on the cross. God went and made peace. Why don't people have peace? Because I want something from you and you're not willing to give it to me. And God says, I'm going to give all. I'm going to give it all. I don't need anything from you. I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to accomplish it all for you and on your behalf. I'll be the one held responsible for keeping up this covenant. And God did it in Christ. That is, verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us what the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are what ambassadors for Christ. We are the ones who go and announce to people the war is over. God is victorious. Jesus has been lifted up and all men will be drawn unto him. God making his appeal through us. And what is our message? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And why should you do that? Why should you be reconciled to God? Why should you look unto the cross of Jesus Christ? Verse 21, because for our sake, God made Jesus to become sin, even though he never sinned, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. In him. 
Working together with him then, chapter 6, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't hear this message that the war is over and then turn your back and walk out the door and still live as if the war is on between you and God. Still live as if there's something that you have to do instead of resting in the fact that Christ has accomplished everything for you and on your behalf. For he says, quoting Isaiah, in a favorable time I listened to you in a day of salvation I have helped helped you, and Paul announces in the end of verse 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is our message. The war is over. God has won. You no longer have to be at enmity with God, but you can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you and on your behalf to accomplish everything that needed to be accomplished so that you might become a part of the family of God. That's the message. That's the message. And that's the only work that the God has called the church to do. But it's not going to happen on Sunday mornings while you're listening to me tell you that this is what we're supposed to do. It's going to happen as you walk out these doors and you choose to reorient your life and the rhythms of your life to involve the other people that are a part of this family, this building of people that God is gathering together for the advancement of his kingdom. And he promises the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a community that lives on mission, or in other words, a missional community. And as Redemption Hill, that's what we want to be. We want to be a missional community that's made up of a bunch of other little, smaller, missional communities that are living in their little neighborhoods and in their parts of the city, allowing their lives to overlap with each other, the rhythms of their lives to be involved with one another, and being disciples who make disciples. And we believe that that's what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that the war is over. Thank you that you have accomplished it all for us. There was nothing lacking, nothing left out. Jesus stretched out his arms and he said, it is finished, paid in full, nothing more required. No more blood, no more sacrifice, no good works that we must do to attain favor with God, but Jesus has attained and accomplished it all for us. God, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, in our hearts this morning, show us that truth. Call us to repentance. Call us to faith. Call us to mission, Lord. And let us go and be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.